all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still, like, ready for another nap, which is a little silly. <laughs> it's okay. Why don't you tell people where they can find us? Yes, follow us uh, at All Bad Things Pod, Insta, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group and our Discord. Very exciting. Yes. <laughs> I literally am, like, falling asleep. Okay. I don't know why, because we're not even recording in the evening. No. Like we usually do. 4.30 in the afternoon. It is. <laughs> uh, the day before this is supposed to come out, by the way, we're procrastinating yet again. That's okay. That's what we do. What, what you got there? I have, um, because it is 4 o'clock in the afternoon... I have uh, the black raspberry flavor of La Croix water. La Croix. La Croix. Do people call it La Croix? I don't even know. I I started calling it La Croix because of Absolutely Fabulous, Mm -hmm. but... I don't know. Now I call it that unironically, so I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What are you drinking? I am having America's finest national local beer. It's Miller time. It is. (laughs) <laughs> we are recording this on the 4th of July, so I guess that's very apropos. Yes, it is. So, um, we just got back from our staycation, because mm-hmm. our wedding anniversary was yesterday. It was. Four years, coming up on our fourth anniversary. Yes. Um, Hannah, in our Facebook discussion I, was, group, I saw that, yeah. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was like, uh, it might be a little late for this, but uh, what about a Zoom for the fourth anniversary? And I think that is a little... Yeah. It's, it is a little late for it, that. Yeah. Um, we'll but, do one again sometime soon, though. Yeah, because Hannah was like, um, hopefully it won't be the 300th is the next time you'll know, do that's, it. That's so. a ways away. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, part of me is like, oh, no, we should just do like plan... Well, maybe we can play them one or two a year or something. Like yeah, do one something in the spring, like one in the fall or something yeah. like that. Um, or probably if I start thinking now about doing one for the 250th, it'll feel like it comes like that. Yeah. <laughs> but we should... Uh, there's two things that I want to have next time around more lead up to. One is the gift exchange. That I'm going to start like in the fall. Okay. Because we have international listeners, and sometimes the they, they don't get their packages really for four time. months. Yes, Bruce only got his in like March, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. It took like four months. Um, and then also, some people just need, understandably, more lead time to think of a gift. And you know, um, I also might ask uh, people to tell a little about themselves and what they're interested in, so that they're because I definitely got feedback that people who gave gifts wish they had known a little bit more about the person Mm -hmm. um so maybe we'll do that so we'll probably start rolling that out uh in like fall this time instead of and that way it doesn't get lost in the shuffle of the holidays sure sort of it still will but that's natural yeah but anyway 
Um, but no, we won't wait till our, well, I say that now. <laughs> I don't think we'll wait till our 300th to do We will do try another. not to. We had a good time. We did. We had a blast. On our live episode. So yes, um, we'll do that. Uh, but we are coming. Oh, things are falling out of our. That's okay. Little <laughs> cabinet here because of our super sophisticated uh, setup. Setup, here. yes. Um, I am working on a what I'm hoping will be a good two parter for our fourth anniversary, fourth potiversary, because our fourth potiversary is July 17th, but we have an episode coming out the 12th and the 19th. So I thought something that like ran was a two parter might be a good. A good uh, way to do it. Plus, we might be in a season of two-parters because we got a really great two-parter script um, from our friend Al, Mm -hmm. our listener Al, and from Nicole. So they both uh, contributed some voluminous research on their topics. Uh, So I didn't want to rush through on either of them. So they'll probably both be uh, two-parters. So we will have some... Some multi-parters coming up, I think. Okay. That's what we'll be doing. Sounds so. good. Yes. And we have a listener script today, because we're yes, not we quite do. done with the air disasters. We are not. <laughs> the, the listener submitted air disasters. So, I have a very intriguing uh, title, or subtitle, for this one today. Okay. From, from our listener. So, this is from our listener, John. Uh, I don't believe we've done a script by John before. I don't think so. I don't think so, but... So this is the if story. We, if we have, please... Uh, yeah, sorry, us. John, if, we're, if we got that wrong, but... <laughs> After 200 sub-episodes, oh, it's hard to goodness. remember anything. This is 209! Wow. I know. <laughs> we're 10% of the way between 200 and 300. That's... Yes, we are. <laughs> Which is why I said that, oh, no, we'll definitely do a live episode before the 300th. You know what? It's been going by maybe, so fast. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> this is the story... Of the de Havilland Comet, or oh. here's a subtitle: Why are all why all aircraft windows are shaped like squircles? What is a squircle? So what I think John means by that is like basically a square or a rectangle with rounded. Oh, I see. Okay, corners, you it's know, a, it's a, not a circle, not a square. It's a squircles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a fun word too. <laughs> yes, squircle. All right. So, and this is all John's words and John's script. This is the story of the world's first commercial jet airliner. Interesting. The de Havilland Comet. Its design heavily influenced the design of all subsequent commercial jets made for all of the wrong reasons. Mm. Uh, Primary sources were BBC.com, AirForceMag.com, SmithsonianMag.com, Aerotime.Aero, and AirspaceMag.com. No Wikipedia. Well done, John. There you go. All right. I think the reason, so I, I told you that for some reason, this, I thought that we had done this before. And I think it's because, um, I think I'm getting this mixed up with the Maxim Gorky for some reason, but I have no idea why. Because uh, we've done like early aircraft, but this is early airliner, mm-hmm. like commercial jet airliner. Um which, why do I feel like we've done this before? I don't know why you feel that way. I know, the name's don't, not <laughs> popping up anyway. Well, 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 we'll get into it. So, de Havilland. The de Havilland Aircraft Company Limited was found by Jeffrey de Havilland on September 26th, 1920. Oh, wow. Okay. That is early. Mm-hmm. Huh? 
Its most famous aircraft prior to the creation of the Comet was the totally badass World War II de Havilland Mosquito. Hmm. Originally conceived as an unarmed fast bomber, the Mosquito's use evolved during the war into many roles, including low to medium altitude daytime tactical bomber, high altitude night bomber, pathfinder, day or night fighter, fighter bomber, intruder, maritime strike, and photo reconnaissance aircraft. It's a quite lot. a diverse mm-hmm. aircraft. Mm-hmm. Yes. It was also... I would not want to be one of the people that has to sign up for all of those different <laughs> <Right>? mis- missions. <laughs> it was also used by the British Overseas Airways Corporation, or BOAC, as a fast transport to carry small, high-value cargo to and from neutral countries through enemy-controlled airspace. Can you name a song or know of a song lyric that includes BOAC? No. Flew in from Miami Beach, B-O-A-C. Didn't get to bed last night. Is that Elton John? Uh, That's not a terrible guess, to be fair. No, it is back in the USSR. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. It does kind of sound like Saturday night's a night. (laughs) Sounds like Elton John. (laughs) Well, they're all all British, so you weren't that far off. You Brits, you're all the same. Well, we did fall asleep during the Brit Pop episode of This Is Pop on Netflix. It's because we were tired. <laughs> well, we were tired. Yeah. <laughs> it is kind of funny because when I woke up again, they were going into how Blur's song 2 became like a stadium anthem here in America. The woo mm-hmm. They used to play, when I, when I first moved here at Hurricanes Games, that's the song they would play when they scored a goal. Yeah? Yeah. Huh. They did that for a while. It's interesting. Then they moved to uh, Petey Pablo. <laughs> <laughs> what song is that? The North Carolina song. Oh. North Carolina, come on and raise up. Take your shirt off. Twist it around your head. Spin it like a helicopter. <laughs> I think I think they all, literally only use that song because he says North Carolina. Just, the, just to yeah. say North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so are, are the hurricanes supposed to be North and South Carolina? Well, I think most teams, because there's not really like a huge Memphis. city in either of the Carolinas. Well, like Charlotte, Charlotte's maybe. Charlotte's pretty big, yeah. Um, I think they just, I think most pro sports teams just put Carolina just to include everybody. It is. Um, the North Carolina Hurricanes doesn't sound as good as the Carolina Hurricanes. Yeah. Yeah. But I get the impression, like the Carolina Panthers, Mm -hmm. maybe because of where they're located, they are closer to South South Carolina. Carolina. Mm Mm-hmm. They feel more like North and South Carolina's team versus the Carolina Hurricanes feel like North Carolina's team. Well, also it's hockey. And South Carolina's not huge into hockey. Not really. Neither no. is North Carolina, to be fair, but I mean, more oh, so now oh, yeah. because of the Canes, I think. Interesting, the uh, Carolina Panthers logo is the two states combined with just the... Really? With the Panther head on it, yeah. I so, somebody, I yeah, somebody pointed that, that out. Yeah. Huh, okay, okay. And you guys thought we were not going to talk sports because we got right into it. Ha ha. Yes. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry to our Montreal friends. It's not looking good for the not looking good. Les Habitants. It's looking like the first sweep will happen in 23 years. Yeah. There has not oh, wow. been a sweep in the final since 1998. Wow. Uh, well, when are they playing again? Monday? I think it's tonight. Oh, to the 4th, July 4th. I think 4. they do play tonight because it's in Canada, so they, they don't celebrate Fourth of July in Canada. That's true. They have Canada Day, which is July first. <laughs> That's true. So either we'll be completely right by the time this comes out, or we'll be wrong. And the yeah. Habs are still. I right. hope we're wrong. I mean, I hope they at least win one. I at this point they're not winning the series. Mm-hmm. I, I highly doubt it. 
But uh, it'd be quite the comeback. If it they would did. be, yes. But you were saying they're mismatched anyway. Yeah, Tampa Bay is just too fucking good. Yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, they're about to win their second in a row, mm. which is something that also has. Well, no, that just happened a couple years ago. Pittsburgh won it in sixteen seventeen. Okay. But yeah, it's pretty rare for a team to defend a title and win. Mm-hmm. So, there's a script. Yeah. Let's get back to it. How about it? <laughs> the Mosquito was often flown in special raids and precision attacks against military intelligence, security, and police facilities, such as Gestapo headquarters. Oh, sorry. Should have mentioned this up near the top, but Lee gave us an advanced copy of his new book, Molly's Song. Well, I think so anybody who's exciting. on the discussion group probably saw yes, that. Yes, I think so. And Thank you again, Lee. Needs. Yes. Started reading it. Yep. Uh, already learned what the bloody flux was. Nice. It's dysentery. Sounds like fun. Did you, did you know that dysentery still kills over a million people a year in the world? I'm sure in third world countries. Developing nations, yeah. correct. Yeah. But yeah, still. It sounds horrid. It doesn't sound Absolutely fun. awful. Killed a lot of people in World War Two as well. Yeah. A lot of Japanese soldiers died mm. of dysentery. It's mostly just in unsanitary conditions, mm-hmm. I think, is the thing. On January 30th, 1943, the 10th anniversary of the Nazis' seizure of power. I knew it was early, but I didn't. I guess I didn't realize it was 1933. Oh, 33, yeah. Well, very early 33, to mm-hmm. be fair. Yeah. Um, a morning mosquito attack knocked out the main Berlin broadcasting station while Hermann Goring, I'm pronouncing that right, right? Sure. Hermann Goring, was speaking, taking his speech off the air. As Goring was in charge of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, that was especially embarrassing. A second sort of... I think it's the Luftwaffe. Luftwaffe? Yes. Luftwaffe. I think. I always thought it was Luftwaffe, but... You just said it. I did yeah. just say it. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a second sortie in the afternoon inconvenienced another speech by propaganda propaganda minister Joseph... And it's Goebbels, right? Go, yeah, Go, Goebbels. Goebbels. Yeah. There's no like, R in there, but I know that kind of sounds like correct. that, right? Goebbels. Yeah. I've, I've heard it pronounced Goebbels, too, but I think Goebbels is... Goebbels, Goebbels. I've heard it more yeah. frequently said as Goebbels. Yeah. But... That guy. Yeah. That horrible person. That, that one of the worst human beings that ever lived. Yes, pretty much. Is he the one who did the experiments on people? No, Mengele. That's who that's Mengele. Yeah, uh, Goebbels was the uh, was propaganda minister. Yes, I was going to say he was the uh, he was basically like Hitler's. He was front the marketing man. guy. Yeah. Oof. The the incidents he, caught... and he was he was very excited about being the let's kill Jews marketing guy. Ugh. Can you imagine? No, I can't. Uh, yeah, fortunately, like the, no. <laughs> kind of the further you get away from that war, and then you kind of realize what it's almost, it's like, this couldn't have happened, could it? I well, mean, it, it's... it goes to show you how careful you have to be when you think, well, that couldn't happen. I know, but it's it's yeah. so... It feels so... Like if it had happened 2,000 years ago, where yeah. people mm-hmm. were still, like, kind of near and Neanderthal still, it, it would kind of make more sense, but... In the 1930s, human mm-hmm. beings had evolved to, like, a level of sophistication. And, mm-hmm. and so did Germans, by the way. I mean, mm-hmm. Germans were technologically superior, still are, in many ways. Mm-hmm. And to have that happen, is it's just... It just doesn't make any sense. It's, it is it is almost unbelievable. Except, just to be clear, it did happen. It did, yeah. I'm not, not denying. No, absolutely <laughs> not. That. But it's so cruel... That it sounds like it could be made up. You know, I wonder if people who are Holocaust deniers, aside from some who are definitely racist pieces of shit, Mm -hmm. um, if some people 
it literally is just unbelievable to them. It might be. I mean, that... You know, that, and they just feel like humans can't... Yeah, we can't like go that, that far. You know, there is something to be said for having too rosy a picture of human beings. There is. There are some people... I mean, I think it's fine to be an optimist, but there are some people who are a little too far down the optimism yeah. route to the point where it's like they are not willing to face reality. Yeah, you know? it's like there are people that are just eat straight up pure evil yeah for I one mean, reason or the other or you know. and a lot of people who can join in on that very easily oh it's very easy you to, know yeah i mean we had four years of donald trump <laughs> fair enough <laughs> the incidents caused goring to complain that the british quote have the geniuses and we have the nincompoops after the war is over i'm going to buy a british radio set then at least i'll own something that has always worked end quote interesting yeah okay of course, instead of buying his radio after the war, Herman was convicted at the Nuremberg trials and sentenced mm-hmm. to death by hanging, but, um, and I'm just going to update this a little bit, just the terminology, but killed himself by ingesting cyanide hours before the sentence was to be carried out. Eh, either way. That's, now, okay, here's the thing. I do not subscribe at all to the belief that killing oneself is, quote, weak or, like, because... You know, that used to be a thing. It still is sometimes that people say that. Yeah, it still is a thing. In this specific instance, I will actually say that what it was is him deliberately undermining his execution. Yeah, that's a, like yeah. he's he was like, going to die anyway. Take me, copper, yeah. sort yeah. of a thing. Yeah. yeah, he was going to die anyway. One of the uh, one of the people from the Nuremberg trials, one of the high ups, and I can't remember which one it was. They fucking hung him right in front of his own house. I'm like, wow. Like, yeah, that's serving you right. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of the purpose of the Nuremberg trials was this was so unprecedented. We need to meet it with also unprecedented, like, um, condemnation. Pretty much. And need to set an example. Like, if you try this, this is what will happen to you. It's it's also why a lot of underlings got away with it. Mm. Mm. Because they needed to put people, the top people, front and center. Mm. Yeah, that's why. So, it, in a way, it was also a publicity sort of thing. Oh, very thing. much so. Yeah. Yes, very much so. In I'll retrospect, yes. Yeah. I mean, yes, these people did commit horrible crimes, and they should have been hung in front of their own house, but they strictly went after the big fish. They let a lot of people get like away. Like the medium and smaller sized fish, they were like, keep an eye on you. They got they made their way to Argentina. They made yes, their way to Argentina. A lot yeah. of them did. Um, uh, plus, you couldn't. I mean, there were millions of people involved. You, it was you literally impossible to charge That's everybody. True. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Because um, honestly... I, I saw the movie Judgment at Nuremberg when I was a kid, and that's about where my knowledge of the trials... Yeah, so I, I don't know, know a ton a about it. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay, the... Uh, da-da. By March 11th, 1943, everyone knew the fate of the war was settled. The Allies were going to come out victorious, and it was only a matter of time. I, d- I guess I kind of didn't know that that it what that that was when things were starting to become inevitable. That's when things in started the European front at least. Yes, yeah. that's when things started to turn. turn. Yeah, it was not looking that way just a year or two earlier. No, not at all. Well, not at all. Uh, this is only a year and three months after the U.S. even entered the mm-hmm. war. So Britain also knew that their aviation industry was lagging behind their American counterpart. Yes. With the Luftwaffe bombing their factories and their focus set to build as many bombers and fighters as they can, British commercial aviation was not in great shape. 
Was it the Royal Air Force? R-A- yes, yes, R-A-F. the RAF. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So to solve this, the British government set up the Brabazon Committee, which I keep wanting to say Barbazon, <laughs> uh, the Brabazon Committee. The committee had the goal to determine the future of their aviation industry. And a lot, like most aviation is, like technological advances have come from military oh, most. applications, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It came up they're, with... They're like, hey, we can fucking kill a lot of people with something <laughs> like that. Let's build it. Well, and then... But then that has yes. commercial applications, too. Yes, it does. Too, yeah. yep. It came up with five aircraft types that would be needed after the war. And one of them, called Type 4, was a jet-powered aircraft. The requirements for it were simple. To be faster than piston-powered aircraft, more comfortable, and have a larger flying range. I did not know that aircraft used to be piston-powered as opposed to jet. That's interesting. Plus, they also had to uh, come up with the fuel, too. Jet fuel Mm, is different mm -hmm. than... Yeah, that's true. Jeffrey de Havilland influenced the committee to consider this type of aircraft, even though at the time, jet engines were seen as too unreliable, with an insane amount of fuel, Mm -hmm. as he said, consumed, and too complex to maintain at a commercial level. The committee accepted the proposal and in 1945 awarded a development and production contract to de Havilland under the designation Type 106. First phase development of the DH-106, DH I guess meaning de Havilland, 106, focused on short and intermediate range mail planes with small passenger compartments and as few as six seats before being redefined as a long range airliner with a capacity of 24 seats. Yeah, that's initially like when planes first started to become commercial, that was their purpose For to mail, carry right? mail. Yeah, and then delivery. Some, then somebody was like, why don't we just put people in them too? <laughs> we can deliver people. <laughs> we can deliver too. people. <laughs> well, I. As with most things, it probably takes a while to understand the full commercial potential. Oh, of course, yes. Of something, yeah. Especially when it's brand new. Oh, yeah. Like international travel becoming simple. Yeah. Like that. And at this time, I mean, what, like probably a tenth of 1% of the world population had ever flown? Oh, yeah, so just <laughs> you know? tiny. Uh, yeah. Unless you were in the military. Yeah, unless you were in the military. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah or whatever, yeah, mm-hmm. Out of all the Brabazon designs, the DH-106 was seen as the riskiest, both in terms of introducing untried design elements and for the financial commitment involved. Nevertheless, BOAC found the Type 4's specifications attractive and initially proposed a purchase of 25 aircraft. In December 1945, so now the war is over, when a firm contract was laid out, the order total was revised to 10. So, well, let's pull back on that. Said Minister of Supply, Duncan Sandys, quote, During the next few years, the UK has an opportunity, which may not recur, of developing aircraft manufacture as one of our main export industries. On whether we grasp this opportunity and so establish firmly an industry of the utmost strategic and economic importance, our future as a great nation may depend. That's a very, end quote. (laughs) It's a very British way of saying all of that, but... Um, it's a good thing we fell asleep during the Britpop episode. <laughs> it's not, you know what? It, it does seem kind of foresightful. It does seem like, hey, look, because Britain is rebuilding too. Oh, yeah. All of Europe is. Yeah, greatly. Yeah. So to be like, we need to come out ahead in something. Like, we well, need they, to take uh, this opportunity. And everybody in the world knew that who was really going to come out on top of all of this was going to be the United States because... We didn't we, get attacked we didn't, directly. Except for once. And that yeah. wasn't even and it wasn't, inside yes. the and bounds Ho- of the U.S. And at Hawaii the time. wasn't even a state mm-hmm. yet. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like everybody knew um, 
including the Russians as well, like, the United States is really going to be the ones that come out on top of this because they, mm-hmm. they don't have to rebuild, and they have a commitment a commitment to technology. Yeah. You know, that that we have to have as well. We just can't get it up to speed as fast as, right. you know. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but now I'm talking post, okay, very specifically post-Civil War. Uh-huh. On U.S. soil. There has not been a war since. No, no, no act of war. Nope. Aside from one could say 9-11. But that's still a terrorist it attack. It was a terrorist attack. And we've had more than that in terrorist mm-hmm. attacks. Because yeah. we've had, especially, yeah. we like to grow our own terrorists. Yeah, I was going to say, we have, so. we have school shootings to make <laughs> yeah. up for, well, the, uh, for the lack of uh, there's that too. battles on uh, yeah. American soil. Although I have that's a feeling true. in the next decade, one of those is going to pop up anyway. It might. Yeah. I don't know. All right, so the comment. A design team was formed in 1946 under the leadership of chief designer Ronald Bishop, who had been responsible for the Mosquito. I will say, um, since this is all, like, British-oriented, it's kind of nice not seeing some of these names for the first time and having to figure out how to pronounce them. (laughs) Ronald Bishop, I can handle. (laughs) Who had been responsible for the Mosquito. The comet was powered by four jet engines and had a four-place cockpit occupied by two pilots, a flight engineer, and a navigator. The clean, low-drag design of the aircraft featured many design elements that were fairly uncommon at the time, including a swept-wing leading edge and integral wing fuel tanks, which meant instead of having a fuel tank, they just filled up the wings with fuel, which is fairly common today. I did Mm -hmm. not know that. That's interesting. The Rolls-Royce Avon engines... Oh, they had Mm -hmm. Rolls-Royce engines. Yes, they did. ...were buried in pairs in the wing roots instead of hanging off the wings or the rear of the fuselage, as is typically done today. Oh, so those actually kind of inside, buried in pairs in the wing roots, which I'm guessing is like the armpit kind of mm-hmm. area. And uh, BMW made the engines for the Luftwaffe. That's what BMW oh, originally was. was I knew uh, they had a weird uh, little Nazi history. They do. Yes, they do. <laughs> but that's what BMW originally was, was a, a company that made airplane motors. mm which is They're the insignia, symbol. Yep. right? It's mm-hmm. like a propeller. propeller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In September 1946, BOAC requests... Imagine having a Rolls-Royce plane, though. That'd be kind of fucking awesome. <laughs> well, the, the engine. <laughs> the engine, yeah. Not the whole plane. In September 1946, BOAC requests necessitated a redesign of the DH-106 from its previous 24-seat configuration to a larger 36-seat version. I would think that if you're going for a commercial application, especially for passengers, you need more seats. Yeah. So. The redesigned aircraft was named the DH-106 Comet in December 1947. Revised first orders from BOAC and British South American Airways totaled 14 aircraft with delivery projected for 1952. As the Comet represented a new category of passenger aircraft, more rigorous testing was a development priority. From 1947 to 1948, de Havilland conducted an extensive research and development phase. The first prototype DH-106 Comet was completed in 1949 and was initially used to conduct ground tests and brief early flights. The prototype's maiden flight out of Hatfield Aerodrome took place on... 27 July, 1949. I'm going to guess that uh, John is British, but I could be wrong. Uh, July 27th, 1949. I'm sorry. I'm still so American. I have to like reverse it. I'm used to it now because at work, that's how we have to document our our Uh, dates. I I understand. (laughs) Before that, I was like, yeah. Years make sense. But yeah. And lasted 31 minutes. 
Oh, it was funny. Uh, I think it was Nicole who submitted a script recently said that uh, she was so used to, you know, okay, how many kilometers is this? Because we always mm-hmm. try to do this, uh, the Translate. metric and mm-hmm. and standard uh, units of measurements. She said she was like in that groove. So she thought to herself, okay, what does this date translate to in metric? <laughs> Just, which kind of there is. Yeah, if sure. The, of course anyway. there is. At the controls was de Havilland chief test pilot John Cat's Eyes Cunningham. Uh-uh. <laughs> I like that. A famous night fighter pilot of the Second World War. Should have said that in a transatlantic accent. <laughs> well, it's British, technically. But, but still, it's more fun. <laughs> I'm not very good at the trans. You are very good at the trans. <laughs> Cat's Eyes Cunningham. What, what is his name again? John, John Cat's Eyes Cunningham. John Cat's Eyes Cunningham. There you go. <laughs> I think it's... From they- Sheffield, England. <laughs> we don't know where. No, I don't know. <laughs> I think they I called him... I'm just one of the few cities I can remember. <laughs> I think they called him Cat's Eyes because he was a night fighter pilot, and cats can see well in the dark. That's my guess. Just like a cat, he can see in the dark. <laughs> On his bombing mission. Hmm. <laughs> moving along along with co-pilot harold tubby waters harold tubby waters so they had cat's eyes and tubby one of them got the short end of the nickname stick there yeah (laughs) could have been a reverse nickname you never know he might have been like a beanpole right like where they they (laughs) call someone who's heavy slim or Mm -hmm. something like that engineers john wilson and frank reynolds i guess they didn't get nicknames Yeah. yeah And those, flight, guys, those guys suck. <laughs> flight test observer to- Tony Fairbrother. Oh, that's good. That's good on its own. Oh, <laughs> John says it's hilarious. You guys just know us. <laughs> Apparently, cool nicknames are for pilots only. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> the other people don't matter. The prototype was publicly displayed at the 1949 Farnborough Air Show prior to the start of flight trials. A year later, the second prototype made its maiden flight in July 1950, and it was used by the BOAC Comet Unit from April 1951 to carry out 500 flying hours of crew training and route proving. So it was being tested pretty heavily, it sounds like. The original model, the Comet 1, was the approximate length of, but not as wide as, the later Boeing 737-100, the first and stubbiest version, and carried fewer people in a significantly more spacious environment. BOAC installed 36 reclining seats with 45-inch seat pitch, which is the distance from a point on one seat to the same point on the next seat. Okay. That's that's pretty wide. That's quite wide. Yeah. Four, that's almost four feet. Yeah. Wow. Typical. <laughs> that, oh, here's that, a. I was gonna say then along the way, like, no, we could stuff more people in here if we just make the seats smaller. Well, here's smaller. the contrast. Typical U.S. domestic seat pitch today is thirty to thirty-one inches. Yeah. But Aslo is twenty-eight inches on Spirit and other crappy airlines. Yeah. yeah. Large picture window views and table seating accommodations for a row of passengers afforded a feeling of comfort and luxury unusual for transportation of the period. Amenities included a galley that could serve hot and cold foods and drinks, a bar, and separate men's and women's toilets. Yeah, definitely in first class because I did get bumped up to a first class uh, seat one time. The seats are much bigger. Mm. Like you can, and more comfortable. Mm Mm-hmm. Farther apart, front to back, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More, more uh, foot room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting, too. Separate men's and women's toilets, because all of the toilets... It's all unisex. There are, they yeah. are all unisex, yeah. I mean, on a common... In my experience, <laughs> on planes. 
Provisions for emergency situations included several life rafts stored in the wings near the engines, and individual life vests were stowed under each seat. So it sounds like this is what's starting, mm-hmm. like, our our modern commercial. Well, at least they're, at least they're making Their a point stuff, of safety, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of surprising. Then again, mm-hmm. this is a British company, so maybe they... Well... <laughs> Are a little more mindful. Yeah, maybe they're a little less capitalistic than Americans. Mm, So. (laughs) Just a little less. That's like saying they're less colonialistic than Americans. Well, the Brits are more. (laughs) See, that's very, it's very interesting how we talk about gradations of these things because, anyway. We didn't have a, we didn't, we've never had close to an empire that the Brits have had. I know. What I'm saying (laughs) is it's, it's kind of hard to like delineate who's more capitalistic and who's more colonistic and all that. So anyway. Yeah, it's it's not exactly like a dick measuring contest you want to get into. <laughs> right? No, we <laughs> no. are better at. We have killed more people. Yeah, we, what are you killed, talking about? Killed more like, people, yeah. yeah, great job in India. Mm. And very famously, uh, Canada has been in the news lately for yeah. some uh, some of that uh, stuff. Can- so yeah, Canada unfortunately has got some literal skeletons in their closet, except these ones were buried in the ground. It's just, uh, colonization is just bad, bad all around. And in both countries, we still both partake. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You're you're correct, it's not done. No. Mm -mm, By a long shot. The fifth production aircraft received the first Certificate of Airworthiness awarded to a comet six six months ahead of schedule. On May 2nd, 1952, as part of BOAC's route-proving trials, a comet took off on the world's first jetliner flight with fare-paying passengers and inaugurated scheduled services from London to Johannesburg. Okay. Such luminaries... South South Africa? I I, I believe so. Mm -hmm. Uh, John didn't specify, but that would be my guess. That's quite a long flight, I think. It is. Like, just... You're going all the way... Yeah, you're going all the way to the bottom of Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Such luminaries as Prince Philip, Queen Elizabeth... The, meaning the Queen Mother, and Princess Margaret. Wait, Queen Elizabeth the Queen. Oh, the current Queen Mother. Yes, yes. And Princess Margaret. Wait. I, who cares? I don't think Elizabeth. <laughs> anyway, I'm now I'm getting all caught yeah, up. Yeah, Prince yeah, Philip, Queen nobody, Elizabeth, yeah. and Princess Those Margaret people. flew on the comet. Yes, okay. <laughs> Flights on the comet were about 50% faster than on advanced piston engine aircraft, such as the Douglas DC-6. Uh, so 490 miles per hour or 790 kilometers per hour for the comet compared to the DC-6's 315 miles per hour or 507 kilometers per hour and a faster rate of climb further cut flight times. So it's faster, which when you're going from London to Johannesburg, I imagine yeah. you want to cut off I, as much time that's from probably, such a long haul. Even today, that's probably a long flight. I would think so. Yeah. Um, Didn't Prince Philip just die? Yes. I think so. This yeah. year. Yes, he died this year. Speaking of my, me not caring, I'm like, oh, I think, <laughs> I think I know. I'm like, why do I know that name? Yeah, I think he just died. Yes, yeah. I believe so. I believe he did die this year at like age 98 or something. Yeah. Wild like that. They they live a long time. If they don't die from hemophilia first. That That's was a terrible true. joke. I, I don't know what it's in reference to, but. <laughs> it's in reference to the idea. Of, so, um, inbreeding oh, of okay. humans. They're one, like, famously in lineage past the royal family because of inbreeding like they're they were prone to hemophilia okay as a genetic like uh problem that could pop up when inbreeding so meaning fun times for all yes (laughs) 
So that was just a very, I guess I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel too guilty about making a joke against incredibly privileged people. But, no. Yeah. Whatever. Um, so uh, in August 1953, BOAC scheduled the nine-stop London to Tokyo flights by Comet for 36 hours compared to 86 hours and 35 minutes. That's a long On their Argonaut time. Piston airliners. It's yeah. almost four days. Yes, yeah. yes. Pan Am's DC-6B was scheduled for 46 hours, 45 minutes. So they were still shaving. Just shy of two days. They were still shaving 11 hours off of that. Mm -hmm. The five-stop flight from London to Johannesburg was scheduled for 21 hours, 20 minutes. So that's still, It's less than 24 hours, but it is is also It's going to take almost a whole day. So there's that. Yeah. In their first year, Comets carried 30,000 passengers. Obviously, in total, not... At once. (laughs) As the aircraft could be profitable with a load factor, which is percentage of paid seats filled, as low as 43%. So it could be profitable with just 43% of seats being sold. That's definitely not happening today. Commercial success was expected. The jet engines allowed the Comet to fly above weather that competitors had to fly through. Mm -hmm. They ran smoothly and were less noisy than piston engines and had low maintenance costs and were fuel efficient above 30,000 feet or 9,100 meters. Because at that that elevation, you're kind of just gliding. Yeah, and and, Mm -hmm. yeah. Unfortunately, on October 26, 1952, the comet suffered its first hull loss when a BOAC flight leaving Rome's Chiampino Airport, quote, failed to become airborne. End quote. That's That's a nice way of putting it. And ran into rough ground at the end of the runway. Only two passengers sustained minor injuries when the aircraft was a write-off. So the the plane got junked, Mm -hmm. but fortunately only minor injuries by only a couple people. Nevertheless, by 1953, the comet appeared to have achieved success for de Havilland. Popular mechanics wrote that Britain had a lead of three to five years on the rest of the world in jetliners, which was exactly what they were kind of looking for to be mm-hmm. the, um, the, what am I trying to think of? The, the trend, not the trendsetters, but the, well, that's kind of, yeah. <laughs> there's a word for it. Anyway, the, the leaders in the field, I guess. Um, in addition to the sales to BOAC, two French airlines each acquired three Comet 1As, an upgraded variant with greater fuel capacity, for flights to West Africa and the Middle East. A slightly longer version of the Comet 1 with more powerful engines, the Comet 2, was being developed and orders were placed by airliner, airlines around the world. American carriers Capital Airlines... National Airlines and Pan Am, none of them are which are around no, now. No, they're not. On, no, no. Placed orders for the planned Comet Three, an even larger, longer-range version for transatlantic operations. Then, on March third, nineteen fifty-three, a new Canadian Pacific Airlines Comet One A named Empress of Hawaii, quote, failed to become airborne, end quote, while attempting a night takeoff from Karachi, Pakistan. The aircraft plunged into a dry drainage canal and mm. collided with an embankment, killing all five crew and six passengers oh, wow. on board. So really, they were just, they just lucked out that there weren't that many people right. on board, even though it's horrible that the people on board did die. The accident was the first fatal jetliner crash. Really? Another first. Yep. Well, because this is early sure. jetliner well, days. Sure. That's true. 
as well as the comet's first accident to result in fatalities. In response, Canadian Pacific cancelled its remaining order for a second Comet 1A and never operated the type in commercial service. I can understand that because sure. that's a hard sell. Yes, it is. <laughs> Both early accidents were originally attributed to pilot error as over-rotation had led to a loss of lift from the aircraft's wings. It was later determined that the comet's wing profile experienced a loss of lift at a high angle of attack, and its engine inlets also didn't work well in the same conditions. So as a result, de Havilland redesigned the wings. So at least they responded to it. Mm -hmm. It seems like they updated it. The comet's second fatal and third total accident occurred on May 2nd, 1953, so that's just two months later, when a BOAC Comet 1 crashed in a severe thunder squall six minutes after taking off from Calcutta Dum Dum, now to, to let's see, I, I, I spoke too soon that, like, oh, it's all British names, but of course they fly internationally, Nataji Subhash Chandra Bose International Airport, India, killing all 43 on board, mm. so the death toll's rising too. Witnesses observed the wingless comet on fire plunging into the village of Jagalgori, leading investigators to suspect structural failure. (laughs) Well, given that the wings were no longer on the plane, I think that's a pretty good uh, suspicion. Pretty good assessment. Mm -hmm. Could have been hit by lightning, too. Well, it was in in a thunder squall. Mm -hmm. But, okay, so it was hit. say, Say it was hit by lightning. Fair enough, especially to be on fire. Why were the wings Yeah, why were the missing? wings not there? Both. Yeah. Maybe one, if that had been what would have been struck by lightning, like it like severed a I don't know if that's how lightning works, but if it severed a wing but both. That's, yeah, that's yeah. Might be a bit of a problem. After the loss, the central government of India convened a court of inquiry. The inquiry concluded that the aircraft had encountered extreme Negative G-forces during takeoff. Do you know what that is? Negative G-forces? I, I I'll have know. to look that I, up. Yeah, That's I interesting. Leading to Negative the loss gravity? of the wings. I, I don't know. So, during takeoff, the wings were lost because of negative G-forces. It wasn't going fast enough, maybe? I don't know. That's so interesting. I have to look that up. Yeah. Examination of the cockpit controls suggested that the pilot may have inadvertently overstressed the aircraft when pulling out of a steep dive by over over manipulation of the fully powered flight controls. Oh, like trying to do something manually that the plane could handle automatically, kind of. Two significant design changes also resulted. All comets were equipped with weather radar and the Q-feel system was introduced, which ensured that control column forces would be proportional to control loads. This artificial feel was the first of its kind to be introduced in any aircraft. The Comet 1 and 1A had been criticized for a lack of feel in their controls. Investigators suggested that this might have contributed to the pilot's alleged overstressing of the aircraft. So if pilots are used to things feeling a certain way, Mm -hmm. if it kind of like this new system adjusted that so it would feel right to the pilots, maybe that's the idea. Unfortunately, things are about to get worse. Mm. On January 10th, 1954, 20 minutes after taking off from Campino, the first production comet broke up in midair. Jesus Christ. While operating BOAC Flight 781 and crashed into the Mediterranean off the Italian island of Elba 
with the loss of all 35 on board. Yeah. The idea if, if of the planes breaking, breaking up, up in midair, that's, that's horrible. Fucking, I, uh, I could not imagine uh, the fear of that. Just, oh, uh, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. With no witnesses to the disaster and only partial radio transmissions as incomplete evidence, and these are pre-black box days, obviously. Sure. No obvious reason for the crash could be deduced. Engineers at de Havilland immediately recommended 60 modifications aimed at any possible de- design flaw. So it sounds like they just, like, Let's find anything we possibly can. It sounds like they're literally going back to the drawing board. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell if they're... This is from John. I can't tell if they're randomly fixing things to see if that helps, or there were 60 flaws they decided to finally get around to fixing. That's true, yeah. I mean, that's... Uh Uh-huh. While the newly formed ABLE committee met to determine potential causes of the crash... BOAC also voluntary grounded, voluntarily grounded its Comet fleet, pending investigation into the causes, causes of the accident, said Winston, Shur- Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill. Oh, yeah. That guy. Who was again prime minister. That's right, because he was prime minister. He was. And he wasn't, then he was again. Then he was again, yep. Quote, the cost of solving the Comet mystery must be reckoned neither in money nor in manpower. End quote. So, in other words, nothing's too much we need to figure this out he was apparently always hammered so he might have introduced himself as winston churchill winston churchill (laughs) i'm winston churchill media attention centered on potential sabotage so i guess Mm. it's cold war era you know while other speculation speculation ranged from clear air turbulence huh to an explosion of vapor in an empty fuel tank Mm. The ABLE committee focused on six potential aerodynamic and mechanical causes, including metal fatigue of the wing wing stretch, <laughs> wing structure, failure of the window panels leading to an explosive decompression, Jesus. or fire and other engine problems. The committee concluded that fire was the most likely cause of the problem, and a number of changes were made to the aircraft to protect the engines and wing from damage that might lead to another fire. During the investigation, the Royal Navy conducted recovery operations. The first pieces of wreckage were discovered on February 12, 1954, and the search continued until September 1954, by which time 70% by weight of the main structure, 80% of the power section, and 50% of the aircraft's systems and equipment had been recovered. That's pretty remarkable for the 50s. Yeah. The forensic reconstruction effort had just begun when the ABLE committee reported its findings. No apparent fault in the aircraft was found, and the British government decided against opening a further public inquiry into the accident. The prestigious nature of the Comet project, particularly for the British aerospace industry, and the financial impact of the aircraft's grounding on BOAC's operations, both served to pressure the inquiry to end without further investigation. Comet flights resumed on March 23rd, 1954. Hmm. I don't like that. Mm-mm. That they were like, eh, we need to just bring this all to a close now. 16 days later, oh boy, on April 8th, 1954, a comet on charter to <coughs> South African Airways. That's Jesse eating the script. <laughs> yes. Jesse, come here. You can sit on it. You can't eat it. Yeah. It, it just makes noise, Jesse. Makes noise. He's like, you're just taking everything away from me. Yes. I have no agency as a cat. <laughs> you, I was going to take a TikTok of you doing that before, and you wouldn't cooperate. You just sat there. Now, as soon as we start talking, you do it, and I can't film you. 
Um, you can follow, if you want to see the cats on TikTok, you can follow at C-A-P-L-C-O-R-R. I don't know. It was a random. What? On TikTok. I don't know. I just made up a username when I first went on TikTok. So that's it. At Capricorn. I don't know what it means. I don't know. Okay. It's random. Could have just been with like all bad things. But. Yeah, that would have been smart, wouldn't it? It's not what it is. So anyway. All right, so a comment on charter to South African Airways was on a leg from Rome to Cairo, of a longer route from London to Johannesburg, when it crashed in the Mediterranean near Naples with a loss of all 21 passengers and crew on board. This is like the fourth or fifth. <coughs> I've lost track now. In a short amount of time, too. And Yeah, just a couple of years. Mm. So the Comet fleet was immediately grounded once again, and a large investigation board was formed under the direction of the Royal Aircraft Establishment, or RAE. Prime Minister Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill tasked the Royal Navy with helping to locate and retrieve the wreckage so that the cause of the accident could be determined because it, it crashed into the Mediterranean. So. Mm-hmm. The Comet's certificate of airworthiness was revoked, and the Comet One line production was suspended at the Hatfield factory where the BOAC fleet was permanently grounded, cocooned, and stored. Wow. Okay. Well, at least they That's... were just like, "What? look, this we're, is too we're, much. We're yeah. stopping this. Yeah. On October 19th, 1954, the Cohen Committee was established to examine the causes of the comet crashes. Chaired by Lord Cohen, the com- committee tasked an investigation team led by Sir Arnold Hall, director of the RAE at Farnborough, to perform a more detailed investigation. Hall's team began considering fatigue as the most likely cause of both accidents and initiated further research into measurable strain on the aircraft's skin. The reassembled pieces of the aircraft recovered by the Royal Navy pointed to metal fatigue. Pressurization was the leading suspect. Said test pilot Captain Ernest Rodley, who took part in the inquiry, quote, no one had taken into consideration the pressurizing cycles on the fuselage for a given time span, which were faster than the equivalent cycles in the slower propeller-driven airplanes. They sure. were using, like, slower aircraft standards. Well, they were using different metrics, is what yeah. it sounds well, like. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, for a different product. It, yeah. was, it was pushing speeds that previous aircraft weren't, and mm-hmm. pressure resulting, so, yeah. Oh, now he's finding a bag. That's okay. To gauge the effort, to gauge the effect of these cycles, an entire comet fuselage was placed in a giant water tank, and its sealed interior filled with water. To simulate cabin pressure changes in an aircraft climbing to thirty-five thousand feet and then descending again, interior pressure was increased and decreased at three-minute intervals. Around-the-clock testing aged the comet nearly 40 times faster than actual service. That's so interesting. That's interesting. Well, I mean, just think about, I mean, all the... I mean, still, today, the engineering of a plane is... I don't understand. It's wild. I still am not entirely sure how it flies. (laughs) No. We've discussed that loft (laughs) and lift and all that, but still very odd. Very odd. I think that's why... Fear of flying is so common, even though, aside from the lack of control, even though it's so much safer than, like, driving a car. Mm-hmm. Because, like, something seems intuitive about a about a car. Like, okay, there's, like, an engine and even it propels on ground. Yeah. But yeah. the idea of getting that giant plane off the ground somehow, and it's not magic, it's science, mm-hmm. is very 
Yeah, it does. It do, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's hard, it's hard to understand. Yeah, imagine somebody imagine somebody from like a thousand years ago seeing a plane. They'd be like, what the f- Huh? Yeah. <laughs> must must <laughs> be the car. gods or something. Or a toothbrush for that matter. Yeah, but... <laughs> there's a lot of things <laughs> to funny. be fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, what is this thing? Like, you brush your teeth? Why? What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> what does that do? In the meantime, autopsy reports from the Italian pathologist who examined the bodies of the victims of one of the crashes indicated that they had died, quote, by violent movement and explosive decompression. I was just going to say, yeah. yeah. Evidence pointed to the, to the catastrophic failure of the fuselage. The final clue revealing the weakness in the comet's structure turned up on June 24th in the tank at Farnborough, where the immersed test comet had been subjected to the equivalent of 9,000 flying hours. Instruments showed a sudden drop in cabin pressure, indicating that something had happened in the tank. When the drains were open, open and the water flooded out, scientists discovered that repeated pressurization had caused the fuselage to split. God. One fracture started in the corner of a window atop the aircraft where radio aerials were housed and continued for eight feet, passing directly through a window frame in its path. Closer examination showed telltale evidence of metal fatigue. At high altitude, after many pressurization cycles, the comet's fuselages simply lost their ability to contain high air pressure, and the planes exploded with bomb-like force. Jesus that is Christ. wild. The fuselage frames did not have sufficient strength to prevent the crack from propagating. Based on the findings of this and other tests, Comet 1 structural failures could be expected at anywhere from 1,000 to 9,000 cycles. That's a big range. <laughs> Before the Elba accident, the plane that plane had made 1,290 pressurized flights, while the most recent victim had made 900 pressurized flights before crashing. So that 900 kind of falls into the lower bounds or outside the lower bounds. Mm-hmm. So what is metal? Fatigue. <laughs> Fatigue, yes. I don't know why I like choked halfway through that sentence. So what is metal fatigue? Aircraft that fly at high altitudes usually pressurize the cabin so that people don't lose consciousness as if they were standing on Mount Everest. Fair enough. Most planes try to maintain a pressure equivalent to an altitude of 8,000 feet. And we've heard that, that mm-hmm. 10,000 is roughly where, like, you can still stay conscious. And once you get above that, it starts getting mm-hmm. dicey. Yeah. So as the plane climbs, the air pressure in the cabin will drop until the plane hits 8,000 feet, at which point the pressure will stay steady, even though it continues to drop outside the aircraft. This causes the entire fuselage of the plane to expand slightly like a balloon. Metal, when stressed, will okay. lose a tiny fraction of its strength. Mm-hmm. So each pressur- pressurization and depressurization stresses and then de-stresses the body of the aircraft and weakens it slightly. That makes sense. Like if we use the balloon analogy, mm-hmm. eventually if you blew up and then deflated a balloon enough right. times, like it would start to tear. Um, therefore, the age of pressurized aircraft are measured in their pressurization cycles rather than strictly in their age or in hours flown, and inspections maintenance are scheduled at regular intervals. 
An aircraft like a 737, which tends to fly shorter routes, can rack up double-digit cycles in one day, because they're constantly up and down, up and down, whereas an aircraft like a 747, which mainly flies long-distance routes, may only go through one or two cycles per day. Sure. That's really interesting. I didn't mm-hmm. know any of that. Makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. I just hadn't certain, thought of that. Yeah, certain yeah. types of planes are designed to do certain things. Well, yeah. and um, because of their use, mm-hmm. certain types may wear faster than others. Oh, yeah. As they, I mean, I, mean I, I would assume it's just like a car. The more it's used, the more stress and sure. the more, mm-hmm. you know. But it's interesting that it's not, like, you could say that the 737, that this, you know, it's stereotypical 737 and a stereotypical 747 spend roughly the same amount of hours in the air but the 737 may wear out faster because it's constantly up and down and those pressurization cycles are what are stressing the metal so wears down on the mechanics after a while too i would imagine so yeah like like a car that starts and stops Mm -hmm. all the time as opposed to like highway driving Mm -hmm. right As the aluminum fatigues, it tends to crack, and the cracks tend to get longer until something bad happens. So where do the cracks usually start? In a location with very high stress or with some sort of defect, either caused by a manufacturing error or corrosion. Corners concentrate stress in a very small area. Sharp corners, especially so. The comet had two problems. It had nice, large, square windows with sharp mm, corners. Okay. And when they riveted the plane together, they just punched holes in the middle instead of drilling a nice, smooth hole. I see. The square windows concentrated stress in the corners, which is where the cracks in the comet started. There were also signs of cracking around many of the rivet holes. The comet had also a re- also had a relatively thin aluminum skin, which tore much easier like the can of a national local beer. (laughs) Well done, John. Well done. With the discovery of the structural problems of the early series, all remaining comets were withdrawn from service, while de Havilland launched a major effort to build a new version that would be both larger and stronger. All outstanding orders for the Comet 2 were canceled by airline customers. They're like, yeah, no thank you. Mm -hmm. The square windows were replaced by oval versions, and the skin thickness was increased slightly. Remaining Comet 1s and 1As were either scrapped or modified with oval windows and a modified fuselage. All airline customers for the Comet 3 subsequently canceled their orders and switched to the Comet 4, which was based on the Comet 3 but with improved fuel capacity. The Comet 4 first flew on April 27, 1958, and received its Certificate of Airworthiness on September 24, 1958. Unfortunately for de Havilland, the Boeing 707 made its first revenue flight with Pan American World Airways 32 days later on October 26, 1958. The first Douglas DC-8 entered service with Delta Airlines on September 18, 1959. These jets were designed using the lessons learned the hard way by de Havilland, with fuselages designed with thicker skins and with measures designed to prevent cracks from propagating in an uncontrolled manner. Boeing also took steps to redesign the wing of the 707 after discovering it was prone to some of the same loss of lift issues when the plane rotated too much on takeoff. BOAC gain that's so fu- it's it's just like timing, right? Like sure. obviously like they got to learn the lessons from mm-hmm. their competitors like faults and it's public information right. too. I mean the amount of precision that's involved in all of this is But it sounds like they even though they learned their lesson too, they just couldn't make the comeback because these other 
uh, airline or uh, manufacturers had just done it better. Yeah. Bef- like at the right time. Mm-hmm. So. BOAC gained publicity as the first to provide transatlantic jet service on October 4th, 1958. But by the end of the same month, rival Pan Am World Airways was flying the Boeing 707 on the same route, and in 1960, the Douglas DC-8 as well. The American jets were larger, faster, longer-ranged, and more cost-effective than the Comet. Even BOAC, which was owned by the UK government, had entered into agreement with Boeing to purchase the 707 back in 1956, so they were losing confidence in their own Mm -hmm. uh, aircraft. The Comet 4 was ultimately the most popular Comet variant, with a total of 76 Comet 4s being delivered from 1958 to 1964. In November 65, BOAC retired its Comet 4s from revenue service, while a handful of other operators continued commercial passenger flights with the Comet until 1981. I'm guessing they they solved the problem because these weren't falling apart. On March 14th, right? On March 14th, a 1990s, on March 14th, 1997, a Comet 4C, which had been acquired by the British Ministry of Technology and used for radio, r- radar, and avionics trials, made the last documented production Comet flight. So 97 oh, okay. was the last so of that's Comets. It. Yeah. In total, 114 Comets were built, including prototypes. Of those... 26 or 22% were involved in That's a haul loss or total write-off accident, <laughs> including 13 fatal crashes, which resulted in 426 fatalities. Jesus. Yeah. That's not a, exactly a, a very good legacy. No, it's not. Far from it. That's why it, it, that was a good call by John to turn just the, the, the company aircraft itself, itself yes. into the disaster. Yeah. In, uh, later, the comet, with extensive modifications, was turned into the Nimrod. Yes, the Nimrod. The Green Day album? <laughs> <laughs> Nimrod is a, I believe no, I that it's a name that appears in the Bible, for example. Like, and I don't know how it became, like, a term for an idiot. Like, mm-hmm. Nimrod. Remember? <laughs> that was kind of I do, thing. yeah. <laughs> There's literally a Green Day album. I believe that. I think that's the album that Time of Your Life is on. Okay. So, was turned into the Nimrod Maritime Patrol aircraft developed and operated by the United Kingdom. Later, bits of the Comet design showed up in the French Sud Aviation Caravelle jetliner. Sud meaning south, right, you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which used some licensed fuselage features from the Comet, but wisely avoided the window design. In typically French fashion, they decided to make their windows in the shape of curved triangles. <laughs> okay. Interesting. After orders for the comet dried up, Hawker Siddeley bought De Havilland in 1960, but kept it as a separate company until 1963. In that year, eventually became the De Havilland Division of Hawker Siddeley Aviation. Hawker Hawker Siddeley eventually became part of British Aerospace, or BAE. British Aerospace firms, having lost their, uh, quote, lead of three to five years on the rest of the world, end quote, remember they were like Mm -hmm. advanced, designed and built many more commercial jets, none of which achieved the same level of success of those manufactured by Boeing and Douglas. BAE became a member of the European Airbus Consortium, which finally achieved the success the UK was unable to obtain on its own. Airbus more or less splits the market for large jetliners with Boeing Mm 50-50. So the legacy... 
The comet is widely regarded as both an adventurous step forward and a supreme tragedy. Yeah. Nevertheless, the aircraft's legacy does include numerous advances in aircraft design and, sure. unfortunately, in accident investigations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In spite of the comet being subject to what was then the most rigorous testing of any contemporary airliner, pressurization and the dynamic stresses involved were not thoroughly understood at the time of the aircraft's development, nor was the concept of metal, fl- metal fatigue. That is... Well, we didn't really know back then that these tin cans we were launching into the air, <laughs> you know. And that's the odd thing, too, because, um, or, or maybe due to, like, World War, because planes were heavily involved in World War II, yes. obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, not these size not these, and these I guess uses. not, but I don't know. You had, yeah, I guess not. I guess, no. yeah. And the use and... It was completely different. And the yes. design was different because they were mm-hmm. looking for a commercial aircraft so they were going to design it differently to a military plane. but also you would think metal fatigue would have come into play with warplanes you know but what i mean would it because they were not expected to last as long as a commercial that's true and they weren't all expected to come back either and that's, a lot <laughs> maybe a bunch of them too for all we know actually crashed because of design flaws but that's you wouldn't true. know because yeah. you would have thought they were shot down or whatever that's true they did not recover all of their downed planes no. so there was impossible to yeah there weren't investigations in all of them uh while these lessons could be implemented on the drawing board for future aircraft corrections could only be retroactively applied to the comet mm-hmm. according to de Havilland's chief test pilot john cunningham uh that's cat's eyes cat's eyes cunningham who had flown the prototype's first flight, representatives from American manufacturers such as Boeing and Douglas privately disclosed that if de Havilland had not experienced the comet's pressurization problems first, it would have happened to them. Sure. Aviation author Bill Whithoon... A lot of this is trial and error. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's involving Mm -hmm. civilians. ...concluded that the comet had pushed, quote, the state of the art beyond its limits, end quote. So they were just, they were too advanced to know Mm -hmm. what was going to happen and what was wrong, yeah. Metal fatigue did continue to dog the aviation industry, however. JAL Flight 123, remember that? Which we have done, yes. was ultimately doomed by the crappy repair job, but the plane itself, like most 747s, was making many short domestic flights instead of the long-range flights 747s typically make. Thus, it was picking up a lot of cycles quickly and stressing the faulty repair more than it would have on a long-range 747. Another famous incident was Aloha Airlines Flight 243, where a huge section of the the roof, essentially, of a 737 was ripped off the plane. This particular I think I remember that. I, I don't, but it, it, it sounds like another another topic. Yeah, and I think the only person that that uh, died in that was a, a stewardess got sucked out. Mm. Just one, thankfully. That's like the the. People getting sucked out of planes know, is what everybody so is afraid of, really, right? Because you're dead. It's awful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, this particular plane had spent a lifetime making short flights between islands in the salt air, which manages to hit both typical causes of fatigue, high cycles, and sure, corrosion. Sure, absolutely. Yep. On the oh, other salt hand, will corrode things like a motherfucker. Oh, yes. On the other hand, it also shows they did learn something from the comet, as small cracks destroyed the comet while the seven this the seven thirty seven landed with a huge part of the plane missing. Jesus. Most fatigue issues come from jet engines these days, as the stress of rapidly spinning in an extremely hot environment will usually expose any manufacturing defect and send a random engine part out of the engine. 
These are usually contained within the engine, but when they're not, you get United Flight 232. Wow. And that, my friends, was the story of the de Havilland Comet. Uh, subtitle, Why All Aircraft Windows Are Shaped Like Squirkles. I know, that's interesting. And we have I pictures. I guess I've never noticed that. We have pictures. Here's a, a cutaway of the de Havilland Comet. Okay. Let me see. Looks yeah, like Yeah, very, uh, very right. modern looking. Yeah. And here, uh, oh, with the square windows. It does look funny if you actually look at the square windows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? This is wild. This is the um, the water tank. It's like built around oh, it. I was okay. picturing them submerging mm-hmm. it like down into something, but it's an above ground tank like built around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the wings sticking out. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Here's a crack caused oh, by the test. Literally Christ. just split. That's not something you want to see. Here's the Aloha flight. Oh, oh my God! Yeah, I think I have heard about this one. It, it, yes, because they landed the plane. Relatively modern, like yes. in the 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe. I think the only there. person that died in this was one stewardess. Yeah, that's one we're gonna have, we'll to, have cover. to cover. That one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't. Know I have seen. The, I have seen this picture before. Imagine that shit. Like you're in. All of a sudden, your airplane is a convertible. I don't. Uh, I, no, I don't no, think. No, no, I don't no. think that that's the flying experience you were looking <laughs> no. for. No. What the fuck? Oh my god. They must have all just figured they were going to die. Oh, I'm sure. Like, you couldn't... I would think that your first instinct would be, well, been good knowing you. Oh, hell yeah. Oh my god. Oh, I would have... Yeah. I I was going to say I would have lit up a cigarette, but at that altitude and speed, I probably wouldn't have been able... We're all going to fucking die anyway, fuck Mm -hmm. it. But I don't think I would have been able to get it lit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure you could have controlled your no. shaking enough to get no. it out of your pocket. Yeah, I so. literally would have been shitting my pants, as I'm sure most, most of these people I, did. I would not blame them yeah. for that. that I feel sorry for this terrifying. one dude that's wearing white pants. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, wild. and look at I, and just and just the people sitting on the ground. I'm sure they're doing that just to be like, I'm on the ground. Well, you know what it, I mean? They're probably not feeling like standing up and walking right now. Let's that too. Say that. My emotion would be more like, I can feel the ground. This feels so amazing. Like the um, stereotypical, like, kissing the ground (laughs) sort of a thing. Like, so happy to be back on dry land. Yeah, we're going to have to do that. That's pretty amazing, mm -hmm. yeah. I have seen that picture before. I don't know if we have it on our list or not. Mm -mm. Wow. Well done, John. That was really good. Thank you very much. We're almost we're almost through all our listener scripts. What are we gonna do? I know. Well, we have a few. We've got a couple that um, still. Are we gonna have to research things ourselves? (laughs) Well, we have some that we need to flesh out. They're Mm -hmm. either a little short or they're bullet points. You know, Mm -hmm. like research assistance, which is always helpful, and and we appreciate that. Fukushima's on there somewhere. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Which we 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 have, but somebody did send us like a good outline and bullets yes. so which is that's that's one we're definitely because oh yes because it's two disasters well because there's also it's back in the news there have been recent developments as in far, fukushima yes um something to do like the reactor core is still not in good Ooh, shape boy. something like that i just heard something about it the other day huh. like in a blip i'm like oh like that was like 10 years ago it, still, it was 2011 right i think so 2011 yeah. 2012 something like that i feel like it was 11 but that was an earthquake that caused the meltdown right Ascent, well, it was an well, earthquake, I, earthquake that led to a tsunami that led, that led to, to... That's right. It's yeah. like a triple yeah. disaster. Wow. Well, Japan is a fucking... It, it is an island, right? It's yes. not a peninsula. No, it's, it's an, an island. island. Probably not the best place to put a nuclear power plant, but I don't I, know. To my understanding, it's prone, Japan is prone to earthquakes as well. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. About that, but so is New Zealand, as we learned. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so many. Di- oh, um, should probably mention because I think we recorded the last episode, um, the day before this happened. But of course, we are aware of the Surfside building oh, yes. collapse. Of course. Um. I mean, it happened not far from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's that. Um, it is pretty. It is pretty remarkable and pretty wild in the worst way possible because just a building collapsing, especially a residential building, mm-hmm. with no earthquake, no, no hurricane, no mm-hmm. tornado, no no immediate like no landslide, no like no nothing. Although. It is sure coming out that there were like engineering and inspection of issues, course. corrosion, as soon as uh, I saw land it, problems. This is Miami Beach. As but. soon as I saw it on the news, I'm like, I know exactly what caused that because we've covered so many, you know. And it's like it's not not in the news yet, exact, but we all know why. Well, it's not going to be yeah. for a long time, but yeah. I actually think it's going to be a lot. I mean, the obvious is structural damage or structural uh, fault faults, right? But the I think this this lack of oversight. Well, and Miami is notorious for that. But I think also a big part of it is going to be the corrosion aspect and the fact that the land was unstable Mm -hmm. because we are talking about... And that's what I think is going to be so horrible and fascinating that's going to happen more and more is how much climate change is causing disasters. Already, you know, we know like wildfire seasons are horrible now. Yeah, they're much worse than they used to be. Mm Mm-hmm. and and west and, and, and southwest the, and what came out about that recently there was a report because um the state of california does not necessarily have enough firefighters like there was a time oh, there's a staffing shortage there and that's why they use they literally use prisoners as well yeah, to fight fires yeah. for a dollar an hour yeah making the big bucks yeah but um there was there was a time, like in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where they would just do controlled burns. Like, okay, we need to... Right. Like, this is going to become a problem. Let's minimize it now. But they, right. they don't have the resources to do to that do anymore. That. Yeah. So... Yeah. Um, so, but but for... And they're not raking the forest enough, which, <laughs> which we obviously know is a problem. But for, um, for Miami, I mean, Miami Beach... Uh, is essentially below sea level at yes. this point because of the rising oceans. It floods just when it rains normally, like not even not even a storm. It floods, flooding, and in downtown Miami now. So like we're starting to see the actual effects of climate change, and it's just going to get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, it doesn't exist. Yeah, I know. Fun how that happens. Have fun. Have fun how that works out. That it doesn't exist, but it's causing more disasters. So, so we are going to see stop, more of stop, this. Po- stop politicizing it, Rachel. <laughs> we are. Go- that's that's why when people are like, uh, disaster disaster podcast, because apparently Jennifer from Disaster Area gets this too, where people are like, shut up, don't get so political. It's like, do you realize that disasters are they political. are inherently political? <laughs> yes. Um, and so it, it's just, uh, it, we're going to see more of this and it's going to get worse and worse. Um, it's just how it's going to go. And uh, and then capitalism is going to like make it all worse too, like with resor- lack of resources and staffing and mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, kind of like how it's hard for restaurants to find uh, 
people went willing to That's work for like seven dollars an hour. I don't know how it is in the rest of the country because obviously we only live here. Mm-hmm. In the uh, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area, wherever there is not a single restaurant you can walk past that does not have a help wanted sign. It's a lot. Every yeah. like when we were in Chapel Hill this past weekend, mm-hmm. obviously tons of restaurants on that one strip. And what's interesting is uh, Chapel Hill and Durham, especially, there are a lot of businesses that are very good about like they've they've developed living wage coalitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are areas that are actually kind of better to workers bit. yeah. on average. Um, uh, when I was in the coffee shop this morning, they had a plaque, like a, we are a member of Orange County's uh, mm-hmm. living wage program or whatever. Um, it's just sad that it has to be done as like a voluntary coalition instead of just the American government looking out for its people. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't help that a lot of bougie-ass Americans we're... think that um, that people who work in such jobs somehow, quote, don't deserve or, quote, aren't skilled, and it's bullshit. <laughs> so you're telling me the seven different wars we're involved in right now aren't helping the American people? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I am. That's not, uh, that's not what they've been saying. So, uh, happy 4th of July is what we're saying here. <laughs> Maybe you can see why I, I certainly wasn't going to do some sort of rah-rah America themed. This is... I mean, I... I, mean, th- th- I am not a fan of the 4th of July, one. And uh, two, this is not a good year to be. <laughs> I'm a... I'm, I wouldn't say a fan of the 4th of July. I'm a fan of the history of 4th of July and how it came to be and what was involved in it. I, I, I think it's pretty interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, it's okay. a little. It's a little I said bit. okay. Yeah. I said okay. It's the birth of our nation, not the movie. Ugh. <laughs> there's a lot of problems with our nation, including there is, its but birth. But there's plenty so. of problems with all of them. Yeah, but the problem is we never decided to fix it along the way. No. And That's not happening anytime so soon either. Go America. <laughs> and go Canada. <laughs> oh God, we're just all problematic. <laughs> Right, so that uh, no, you're you're the one who does. Yes, that I do. <laughs> thank you, John. Well, yes, done. thank you very, very much. Very well done. That was really interesting, and now we know. Now, next time we have to sit next to a stranger on a plane, we can say, "Hey, do you know why?" Do you know those are called plane? squirkles? And do you know why planes' yeah. uh, windows are squirkles? Yeah, we can Let tell, me tell them, you a we can tell them all about the, the story of a yeah, <laughs> of, a, of a plane breaking up in midair. Yeah, but why they don't anymore? <laughs> yes. God, I, that's still, that's got to be the scariest fucking thing. Jesus. If your car, like, suddenly broke apart, that'd be scary enough. Like, you know the, what I mean? the old, um... <laughs> yeah, when the wheels... Buster Keaton. Yeah, like, and the wheels the, fall the off. silent films, yeah. Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah. But no, imagine, like, the doors and shit coming, like, while you're on the interstate. Like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. no. Yeah, imagine being 30,000 feet in the air on that No, happening. thank you. No, thanks. So that was the story of the de Havilland Comet, or... Why all aircraft windows are shaped like squircles. Courtesy of John. Yes, courtesy of John. Thank you very much for the research. Thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.